good to be here with you today. A few years ago, longer than I want to admit, I pastored a church, and during that time I always did a children's sermon. I love doing children's sermons. Those kids will say anything. And you can see me afterwards, and I can tell you some really funny stories of things they said. But I remember one time I was talking about fear, and I had the kids up here with me, and I said, what are you afraid of? And they didn't have any trouble answering me at all. They said they were, they were afraid of the dark, of thunderstorms, of monsters, of clowns, of things that go bump in the night. They knew what they were afraid of. And then I asked the kids, well, do grown-ups ever get scared? And I was surprised because all of the kids in unison said no. Well, adults sometimes have a harder time saying what scares us. Perhaps our fears are not as simple and straightforward as those of our childhood, but that does not mean that we aren't afraid. Humorous, Dave Barry once wrote that all of us are born with a set of instinctive fears of falling, of the dark, of lobsters, <laughs> of falling on lobsters in the dark, <laughs> or speaking before a rotary club, and of the words some assembly required. <laughs> all kidding aside, we do seem to come with our own peculiar set of fears. And over time, we learn to get over some of them, but they tend to be replaced by new ones, darker ones, more complex ones. If a fear is persistent enough, we call it a phobia, and we give it this fancy name. Now, there is a man keeping a running list online of every phobia he has found listed in the medical papers or reference books. And so far, he is up to nearly 600. And his, his list is absolutely fascinating. There are the well-known ones, of course, like, you know, acrophobia, agoraphobia, arachnidophobia, claustrophobia, xenophobia. But then there are some sophisticated names for common fears. The fear of snakes is ophidiophobia. The fear of public speaking is glossophobia. The fear of the number 13 Triskaidekaphobia. Now, the Apple company is having a problem with their new iPhone 11 trifold because it's scaring people. But it's really not the price tag that's doing the scaring. It's the three holes on the back of the phone that's frightening people who have tryptophobia, fear of small circles. But now, there are less common ones as well, things that most of us would never even think to be afraid of. Things like lutrophobia, which is the fear of otters. Xanthrophobia is the fear of the color yellow. And then there's the fear of long words, which is hippopotomonstroescupidaliophobia. <laughs> but then there is my all-time personal favorite, homiliophobia which is the fear of sermons. <laughs> so if any of you out there suffer from that, then my apologies for all of this. You know, we are all afraid of something. We fear the past coming back to haunt us. We fear the future and all that we don't know. We fear getting old, getting sick, getting dead. 
We fear trying new things. We fear getting stuck in a rut. We fear silence, but we fear being alone. We fear losing someone we love. Just listen to the news nowadays. There is a lot in this world to be afraid of. Now we can't go to a sporting event or the mall or a movie theater or sadly, not even to church without the fear of violence. Just living your life seems to be a dangerous pursuit these days. Do you think that Jesus was afraid of anything? We tend to assume that he was not, which means we assume that he wasn't really human, doesn't it? Because fear isn't a sin. It's a human emotion. So if Jesus was human, and he was, then he did get afraid sometimes, didn't he? Fear makes us feel our humanity. I wonder what Jesus' fears were. Whatever they were, he had plenty of time to wrestle with them alone in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. Mark tells us the story today in devastatingly stark terms. Now, his is the briefest possible account with just one verse, hardly any details at all. If you are acquainted with the stories of the temptation of Jesus, then what you probably have in mind is Matthew's account or Luke's account, where we are told exactly how Satan tempts them and exactly how Jesus responds. But we have none of that here today. We have just the barest story of a man alone in the desert. Still wet from his baptism, the voice of God ringing in his ears, calling him the beloved, Jesus is driven out into the wild. Not led, not invited, driven. Mark tells us what happens like this. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beast, and the angels waited on him. The 40 days that Jesus was in the wilderness parallels the 40 years Israel spent in the wilderness, and the 40 days that Moses spent on Mount Sinai, and the 40-day trip that Elijah took to Mount Horeb. In each of those stories, there was a crisis a frightening sense of God's absence. The wilderness symbolized a place of menace, of chaos, of forces hostile to God. Did Jesus feel that too? I think there are a few of us here today who have felt that before. Have you ever found yourself in a kind of wilderness, a time of of isolation or threat or silence or alienation, uncertainty, emptiness, grief, If you have, then you have spent some time in life's deserts. Then you know how it can feel. It can seem like God is very, very far away. It can be a very scary time. It can seem like you have been turned over to enemy forces. And in a way, Jesus had been. For 40 days, he was put to the test by Satan. Now, this is a cosmic struggle. It is a test of strength between Satan and Jesus. And he faces this alone, but not entirely. Mark tells us he was with the wild beast and the angels waited on him. Now, are those beasts friends or enemies? We know where Satan stands. 
and we know what side the angels are on, but what about those wild animals? Now, Mark is not one to waste words, and he calls them wild, which means we are probably to see them as hostile, aggressive creatures. Now, that's not too difficult to imagine the dangerous animals of the desert, scorpions, spiders, snakes, hyenas, all, maybe, maybe even a few vultures there, all waiting around for Jesus to die. There is nothing warm and fuzzy about those animals. They are the ones that make us shudder. They are the stuff of phobias. They are the ones that make us think of death. But Mark does say that Jesus was with the wild animals, and I can't help but see them not as adversaries, but maybe as companions. Haven't you ever... Haven't you ever, ever had the experience of being totally alone in your sadness or your anxiety or your anger or your confusion and finding comfort in a little animal friend? Sometimes they offer better solace than any human being around. When I was a child and I was upset, I would go find my cat. And I would just bury my face in her side and cry hot tears into her fur. And she would just lie there and take it. I could, I could feel her purring through my eyelids. And that sound, that feeling of a little tiny beast purring through my eyes was one of my very first, first pathways to God because I began to feel that there is this silent, compassionate presence even when no one else understands. There is no reason to think that God is found only in sanctified places. Any part of creation can mediate divine love. God comes to us in whatever ways we can receive. And maybe that's how the animals were for Jesus. Not there to stalk or attack or devour, but to offer some quiet companionship in lonely times. The foxes, wild goats, and sand cats, did they offer their own form of solace in that lonely place? And what about the more prickly creatures, the reptiles, the arachnids, the predators? Were they subdued in Jesus' presence? Did they become his friends? Well, many theologians see this story as a kind of answer to the story of Adam in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, there was a fracture between the human and animal kingdom. Christ comes as a new Adam with his presence. The wilderness is transformed into a new paradise. Now, the animals didn't lose their wildness, but in Jesus, a kind of peaceable kingdom came close, and it can be seen as that final reconciliation and wholeness that God will make possible through Christ. There is a wonderful children's book that we used to read to our kids, Where the Wild Things Are. And it tells of the story of a little boy named Max. Now, Max wears a wolf suit in this book, and he creates mischief. And he is sent to bed without any dinner. And while he's in his room, he imagines sailing away to where the wild things are. Maybe you know this story. The author writes, And when he came to the place where the wild things are, they roared their terrible roars and gnashed their terrible teeth and rolled their terrible eyes and showed their terrible claws. 
till Max said, be still, and tamed them with the magic trick of staring into all their yellow eyes without blinking once, and they were frightened and called him the most wild thing of all, and they made him king over all the wild things. King over all the wild things. You know, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus to me, who faces what is scary and says, be still, hush, stop it. In the late 1930s, there was an English artist named Stanley Spencer, and he was set out to create 40 paintings of Christ in the wilderness, one for each day that Jesus was there, with the idea that they would be displayed during the church year. Now, in the end, he wasn't able to complete the series. He produced 18 sketches, and from that, he painted eight scenes. In his vision, he, he sees Jesus existed in harmony with the wild things in the desert. In his painting, The Scorpion, Jesus is seen with a bushy beard and unkept hair, and he sits on the ground with his hands cupped in his lap, and there in his hand is a scorpion a potent symbol of the pain and destruction and poison that we find in our world today. But Jesus is holding it, and he's looking at it so quietly, so thoughtfully. There's no fear, no flinching, no blinking. His hands can hold what is painful. His love can bear what we fear. He can hold a scorpion. He can face the grave and ask, where is your sting? And that's what he did in the desert for us. He faced down his own fears and ours. He faced his own temptations and ours. He looked the wild things in their yellow eyes and he said, be still. He was tested by Satan and he prevailed. In the other paintings Spencer made of Christ in the wilderness, he relocated various teaching moments from the life of Jesus, and he painted them as though they were there in the desert. Things that happened long ago after Jesus had returned from his 40 days out there, stories he told, Spencer pictures them in the desert. It was as if to say that everything about Jesus' ministry flowed from his experience in the wilderness. And it did. He carried this experience with him. And later in life, rather than fleeing the wilderness, he would seek it out. The wilderness became a part of him. And he became a part of it. He is a part of every wilderness experience that we have. Whether we recognize him there or not, there is no lonely place that he is not there. There is no fear that he is not right beside us. He faces our terror. He faces our desert places with us. But he didn't just show us the way through them. He himself became the way. The wilderness is an essential experience for each of us. We are called to follow Jesus, and sometimes that takes us into wild places. But fear never comes from God. Every single event in life is the opportunity to choose faith 
over fear. Fear is our spiritual invitation to move into wilderness time to expose our lives to the harsh and honest light of the desert to allow Jesus to come into our situation and to claim it. When we are afraid, we need to use that time to recommit ourselves to the hard work of clarifying who we are and whose we are. It's a good time to ponder what we've been running from and what we've been pretending isn't there. We may not be able to name our fears easily, but if we cannot find a way to be truthful about what we're afraid of, then chances are we are letting it drive us and we make so many bad choices when we choose out of fear. Fear is a time to get honest, to face what is hard, to let our fears teach us about ourselves, about what we believe, and most of all, about the God who is bigger. Today, do you know what your wild beasts are? Do you know that Jesus has already walked among them and can tame them and can even convert them into friends? These beasts will teach us if we let them, and Jesus will lead us if we let him. In life, many things will happen to us. You may be transferred, unemployed, enlisted, commissioned, imprisoned, reassigned, hospitalized, widowed, or divorced, or many other things. But, and brand this on your heart, life will never take you where God is not already there. The 17th century French theologian Francis Fenelon once wrote, what are you afraid of? Of following too much goodness, of finding a too loving God, because in the end, that's what we will find. Beyond the wilderness, beyond the wild beast, beyond any fear or any threat, there is this, an all-powerful, good, and loving God that knows your name and totally adores you. In light of that, what is there really that we have to fear? Pray with me, my friends. Gracious God, the life of faith sometimes is harder than we bargained for. But God, you will not abandon us, not to the storms or the deserts of life. Rather, you will come to our fear-ridden hearts, reminding us that we are your beloved children and calling us to greater faith. May it be so in our lives today. Amen.